You're listening to The Resilient Researcher, hosted by Dalen Culver and Megan Douglas, co-founders of Bidu. The Resilient Researcher is a podcast dedicated to the well-being of social science researchers who routinely find themselves navigating complex settings and sensitive subject matter. We want to bring you authentic conversations with peers and thought leaders, sharing practical insights around the mental health challenges of fieldwork. Together, we are finding our way towards a more ethical, sustainable, and resilient research practice. Hey, everyone. Um, Welcome to this special bonus mini episode of sorts. This is the first kind of mini episode that we've done. So this is a new format for us, but we wanted to share with you guys some insights from one of our recent workshops. You know, a lot of our workshops happen behind closed doors and we wanted to find new and interesting ways to kind of share some of the great material and great discussions that we have in those settings with a larger audience. Um, So today, me and Megan are here. Hi, Megan. Hello. Um, Today, we're going to chat through a recent workshop that we did with the Scottish Graduate School for Social Sciences. It was a workshop on managing climate distress. So we covered various aspects of climate psychology, this kind of new and emerging field, what climate distress looks like, and various strategies for resilience, for mitigating negative mental health outcomes as a result of the pretty serious emotional burden of um, contemplating the fact that our, our planet is rapidly changing and there is, you know, damage that cannot be reser- reversed. And um, what does it look like when we really stop and consider that? What does it look like to be resilient uh, to climate distress? So... Uh- before and then before going on also just for a bit of context of the audience for that workshop it was i think it was was mostly if not all phds is that right yeah i think it was postgraduate researchers in that particular research in that particular workshop it was all phds yeah yeah and uh a really interesting variety of kind of areas of research like some engaging very directly with the impacts of climate change others less directly, but uh, kind of just a general acknowledgement that climate change affects all of us and underpins pretty much everything. Yeah. When we first started teaching this topic, the idea was to shape this curriculum directly towards environmental researchers or people who are studying topics related to climate change. And then we kind of dropped that pretty quickly because we realized that it, it wasn't necessary. You know, climate related mental health challenges face all of us, um, whether or not you're studying, you know, flooding in Malawi or eco-anxiety as some of our participants were, or, you know, studying social issues in urban areas of the global North. It's, you know, it's still, it affects all of us. No, for sure. And I think, you know, we're realizing it's coming up in maybe unexpected places. So, you know, you hear a lot of like counselors who work with children saying that, they're seeing kind of evidence of climate distress among young people. Um, whereas, you know, not even that long ago, there really never would have been sort of on anyone's radar. So, yeah, um, I mean, yeah. in the workshop, we started out with a study 
that was recently published in The Lancet that some of our listeners might have heard of. It made big news. Um, it was a survey of over 10,000 young people around the world, all different races, classes, socioeconomic statuses, and found that more than 45% of respondents said that their feelings about climate change negatively affected their daily life and functioning. 75%, so three quarters, said that they think the future is frightening. And 83% said that they think people have failed to take care of the planet. So pretty harrowing results there, statistics there. Um, For sure. I also think that kind of answers, because I was going to like, pose you the question of like, should we start by actually defining what we mean by climate distress? But I think like you just mentioned some of the symptoms, like if we can think of it in terms of like, you know, how it's manifesting itself. I think you just mentioned some of them. And I really, I really like that study because it does take such a global approach. You know, it's collecting perspectives, not just from the West, but, but really around the world. Yeah. And I think it, hones in on youth and really centers the kind of age discrepancy here. And there's a reason for that. Climate change will affect the next generation more so than our parents or their parents. Even, you know, Megan and I are around 30-ish. <laughs> Not to out you, Megan. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. I'm, I'm 33. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... I think even our quote unquote generation hasn't been as steeped in climate change related discourse as say those 10, 15 years younger than us. Yeah, no, for sure. Like I was talking to one of my friends who has like a five-year-old and, and she was saying how upset he is about climate change. I don't think climate change was like, that was not something I was thinking about when I was five. Not to say that in my generation, you know, there were other five-year-olds who were very worried about it. I'm sure there were. But I do think it's becoming a much more common sort of, yeah, concern among very young people. Um, what about other, other terms to, that we might hear to describe climate distress? Yeah. Oh, there's so many interesting new terms coming out to talk about this now um, because climate distress, I mean, that's kind of the overarching umbrella term that we've been using, but it encompasses so many different feelings and frustrations and not exactly clinically diagnosable mental health conditions, but serious phenomena, mental health phenomena nonetheless. So there's new terminology like eco-anxiety, people have probably heard of eco-despair, climate doom, and then there's these kind of fringe ones like solastalgia, which is a form of emotional or existential distress caused by environmental change. And then um, one that I like is immanania, which is this powerful feeling of sorrow for what is about to happen or for future catastrophic events. So the reality is it's going to look different for everyone. Uh, the concept of climate distress encompasses a broad spectrum of emotional experiences and we kind of all dip in and out, right? They're always in flux. One day we might be feeling extremely galvanized and empowered to create change. And then 
the next day we're feeling totally apathetic and disillusioned and really pessimistic about the possibility of change. So I think it's also important to normalize that kind of cycle. For sure. And that was one of my favorite parts of the workshop was pretty early on, we had people sort of make a word cloud with different feelings that they have about climate change. Um, and really interesting seeing the the variety of words that came up. Um, yeah, all across the spectrum. And, and you're right. You know, if we were to ask the same people that same question, how are you feeling about climate change? It would probably look different day to day, um, you know, and that's OK. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things we talked about in the workshop was the danger of consolidating these emotions too much or pathologizing them even. Um, I think it's almost antithetical to try and turn them into something clinically diagnosable because they are so new, they are so ephemeral, they are constantly changing, and we risk trying to fit something very vast and very diverse into like too small of a box. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, do you want to talk a bit about apathy and disengagement and how they can be, well, first of all, not only coping mechanisms, mechanisms but potentially actually dangerous and, and counterproductive? Yeah, so we had a whole section on overcoming apathy. And apathy, so the word actually stems from the Latin prefix a, which means without, and pathos, which means feeling. So it's literally this absence of emotion, this kind of emptiness, this void. So it really is, in terms of climate distress, a form of denial, and not necessarily a conscious one. You know, sometimes we we become apathetic as a protective mechanism to um, try and consciously or even unconsciously repress something that is just too overwhelming because our, our boundaries have been violated and we have no way of drawing the line otherwise. And so we just completely disengage. So it's important to know that apathy and disengagement are protective. They're like functional psychological responses to this very dysfunctional and abnormal situation that we find ourselves in. That being said, it shuts down any kind of emotional engagement. And so it's over time, it becomes problematic because we stop caring and we stop feeling the need to live in accordance with our values. Um, and, you know, we all need to band together if we're actually going to do something about this. And so I think finding ways to sustain engagement and befriending our kind of cycles and seasons of apathy in order to eventually come through them was a really interesting talking point during the workshop. Yeah, for sure. Um, you might want to mention uh, the, the guest speaker that we had on. Um, she's really lovely, but we, we did a sort of practice where we, um, you know, we were thinking about what we we're feeling. And, and I mentioned kind of this, this sense of indifference or apathy and she very kind of wisely asked, you know, okay, well, what's what's beneath that? Um, and for me, it was shame, and uh, that was that was pretty eye opening for me. Shame that I wasn't doing enough, and so it was sort of a mechanism of, you know, uh, how can I kind of pave over the shame? 
yeah, it was, it was interesting. Yeah, our guest speaker was Barb Easterlin, Dr. Barb Easterlin, who's a neuropsychiatrist. She was on staff at Berkeley for decades and recently retired and is now not actually retired, but still working. She created the first ever climate psychology certificate for mental health professionals that's now being taught uh, in its first iteration at the California Institute for Integrative Medicine. So she was a colleague of mine in a compassion training at Stanford several years ago and uh, kindly agreed to come and give a short presentation and then lead us through a mindfulness exercise, which was kind of the the focal point of the whole workshop um, was to get close to difficult feelings. So to really, with compassion, allow ourselves to go there and um, she kind of guided us through that. And it was really powerful for me too. It was one of my favorite parts of the workshop. Yeah, for sure. It was such a such an honor having her. Um, just, yeah, really, really remarkable. And she's done so much in this field. Uh, so it was, it was a pleasure to have her. Um, the Another sort of emotion that, that came up, and this was really from sort of the participant, it was really participant driven, uh, was anger. It's something that, you know, you and I have thought about and, and talked about, but um, you know, the drawing from kind of past workshops, realizing that there was something really interesting here. What is anger? Why do we make it out to be this sort of bad emotion? How can we harness it? And particularly within the context of, of climate change. Yeah, this was a really interesting module and a new addition that you did a lot of research and work on, Megan, and I really enjoyed it. And I think it was a really interesting and thought-provoking part of the workshop for our participants. Um, we talked about kind of the, the historical context behind anger, why it's so villainized. And it's because it's often mistakenly correlated with violence. And we kind of tried to dislodge that, that myth that anger has to be violent. Um, we looked at some of those tropes, like the angry activist, the angry feminist, the angry black woman or angry black man, and the kind of like the racial baggage around that. And then we actually kind of put forth the value of anger, especially when it comes to, to climate action. Anger is hugely motivating. It protects us and it motivates us to protect the people that we care about. It's also a really important flag like anger we might not necessarily want to act from a place of anger because when we're angry our prefrontal cortex is dysfunctional and we're not able to see clearly and think rationally but anger is the flag anger makes us aware of some kind of injustice it's like something is not right here and it's making me really angry and then if we can kind of process that anger and recalibrate our nervous system, then we can find a kind of skillful action to address it and to find solutions. So um, it's a huge catalyst for, for action. And um, I really enjoyed that piece. Yeah, I, I, I can't really think of an emotion that's perhaps more potent in like, uh, yeah, like driving us to change. Um, you know, and, and no emotion in and of itself is good or bad. It's, it's really kind of what we do with it. But it's so, so powerful. And I think there's so much more that can be said on anger. So we might have to have another whole podcast uh, 
on on anger alone. <laughs> I think we should there. do a podcast on anger. I feel like it's a really yeah. salient issue at the moment. Let's do it. it. We need to find a guest that that I mean, of course, we've all dealt with anger, but I don't know. It'd be uh, yeah, we've got to find sort of an interesting kind of angle or lens here, kind of thinking within kind of the research context. But mm. uh, anyone listening who has <laughs> channeled their anger. <laughs> Uh, as a researcher, hit us up. Calling on anger uh, experts. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Or not even ex- you know, just we're all fumbling our way through life, trying to trying to make sense of this and, and do our best. But uh, yeah, no, there's there's so much there. Um, okay, just moving on then. So we've kind of we've addressed you know obviously in a very small nutshell because this is really a, a bite sized piece of this very big vast topic. But you know we've touched upon kind of what climate distress is, um, common manifestations of it, kind of um, the presence of, of emotions like apathy and anger. Um, what about strategies for, for prevention of climate distress and, and resilience? Uh, what does the research say about this? Yeah, I mean, we pulled in all kinds of different strategies and it was a very experiential workshop. Um, so the mindfulness exercise, I think, was really eye-opening and heart-opening for a lot of people um, in terms of, you know, personally getting quite close to the difficult feelings that we all have kind of bubbling beneath the surface. Um, you want to describe that exercise very, very briefly? Yeah. So essentially, Barb just guided us into a kind of meditative state and then allowed us to go into some difficult feelings that you have related to climate change. So I believe she gave us some prompts, like if you have ever experienced a natural disaster or some piece of news that you saw recently, um, what is that feeling? Where does it show up in the body? And that's really the, the crux of mindfulness exercises is figuring out, okay, where does this show up in the body? And then, using that physical experience of the emotion to unravel the mental narrative around it. Um, Because emotions themselves only the the physiological response of an emotion where your body is flushed with a certain cocktail of hormones only lasts 90 seconds. So if we can bring our attention to the physical sensation rather than wrapping ourselves up in the story Um, it actually flushes out of our body and the tension lessens and we create more space for skillful action and deeper conversation, deeper inquiry. So I thought it was a really insightful exercise. Um, And and we did kind of propose those mindfulness and self-regulation techniques as one way to to lessen the the personal strain in moments of distress. But um, in addition, I think... We talked a lot about just normalizing this conversation and finding venues in which to have it with your friends and your family and your peers and really strengthening, investing in those support structures. Um, I think this is a conversation that unfortunately tends to be steeped in shame and blame and that's unfortunate because it shuts down the opportunity for connection and collaboration. And um, we also kind of wanted to signpost people towards some of the resources that are out there. So for example, the Climate Psychology Alliance offers 
I think it's three free sessions to anyone struggling with climate-related mental health issues um, with a certified therapist. And we can put a link in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Just just a quick note, what you were, what you were saying about the importance of strong support structures. Um, uh, I believe we, we talked, we spoke briefly on this, but, you know, we always like to draw in um, understandings of and approaches to mental and emotional well-being from around the world, not just from within the Western context. And there is some really interesting research out there that we that we spoke about um, looking at indigenous practices of of communal approaches to climate change and the role of mourning and social mourning. And so there was a study, and we can reference it uh, in in the description of this podcast. But among the the Inuit people of northern Canada, um, and how you know it's essentially like a, almost like a funeral for the earth, and and it's very communal, and it's a space and a place to to mourn collectively, and we don't really have that in the West. Um, so yeah, some really interesting research there. Um, what about self compassion, Dylan? Yeah, I think self-compassion was kind of Barb's spiel when she came in as a guest speaker. Um, Compassion is the willingness to turn towards suffering and act in some way to alleviate it. So self-compassion is therefore the willingness to turn towards our own suffering. And I think it's important to highlight that this is a universal issue. It is perhaps the most unifying issue in human history. Um, That being said, it doesn't impact all of us equally. And we did say that right in the beginning, um, that this issue tends to have a disproportionate impact on people in the global south and the economically disadvantaged and those who reside in equatorial hot zones, etc., Um, So the whole workshop did have that tone of of both environmental and social justice interwoven. Um, I think in terms of self-compassion, we do have to let ourselves feel what we feel in order to move through it and be able to channel it towards skillful action. So that was kind of the self-compassion piece that Barb was trying to get us to, to taste We also talked about monitoring our own internal resources and specifically moderating or selectively making more selective our intake of media. Um, I shared during the workshop that, you know, during COVID, I had to massively reduce my consumption of news. Um, I'm someone who always likes to be informed and I used to go for a walk every morning, listen to my 30 minute news podcast, never missed a day. And during COVID that the early days of the pandemic, that became totally just untenable for me because it was so visibly bad for my mental health. And I took a major step back and I have been much more selective about when and where I listen to the news and how much and what outlets I get my news from uh, since kind of stepping back into that world. And and I think with climate change, it's particularly important because there is, as we know, such a negativity bias in the media 
and it's hard to hard to seek out the the positives for sure. One of the references that we offered sort of kind of as an alternative, uh, Harvard has a really great uh, blog called The Climate Optimist. Uh, so we can we can put a link to that. But that's, you know, if you need a daily dose of good news when it comes to the climate, uh, that might be a good re- resource. Yeah. And we, we kind of capped it all off with a final module on the power of hope and optimism and we said from the beginning that our intention was not to, you know, spill into this kind of toxic positivity. Um, I think it is very important to see with eyes wide open the reality that we are irreversibly damaging the world that we live in. And at the same time, we have such a strong evolutionary ingrained negativity bias that it is important to seek out small wins and not to deceive ourselves, but to balance that that these two truths can coexist. And actually, there was an amazing quote that we shared during the workshop. Oh, here it is. It's by Sonia Liubomirsky. I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering her last name. But she says, optimism is not about providing a recipe for self-deception. The world can be a horrible, cruel place, and at the same time, it can be wonderful and abundant. These are both truths. There is not a halfway point. There is only choosing which truth to put in your personal foreground. And a lot of the sources that we cited, including Joanna Macy and others, really echo this idea that you know we have to show up as our best versions of ourselves if we're going to come together and address this monumental issue. Um, And that kind of constructive, active hope isn't the same as like willfully blind hope where you're like, oh, everything's happy and sunshine and rainbows and I'm not going to be sad ever. (laughs) You know, they're they're very different. Um, And the former, this kind of eco-optimism is a really powerful and supportive tool. So we kind of capped it all off there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do like ending on a positive note. We do. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Amazing. No, it was, uh, yeah, it was a really great workshop. And uh, anyone listening, if you'd like us to, to deliver a similar workshop to you and your, your colleagues, your cohort, let us know. We'd be happy to. Uh, Dalen, what was your favorite part of the workshop? Um, I think my favorite part was the mindfulness exercise. I've done that exercise several times before and still every time I come away with a new insight and a new perspective. What about you? Yeah, I think it was like my aha moment um, with with Barb when when I realized that my my indifference was sort of masking my shame. Uh, and my guilt. That was pretty powerful. Um, yeah, just just hadn't done that digging before. So it was, it was pretty interesting. But uh, yeah, that was a good one. It was a good one. Well, thanks so much for listening, guys. Glad we were able to share this with you. And we will see you back here next time. All right. Bye. <laughs>
If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague to keep the conversation going. You can also write us a review and or subscribe to stay on top of new episodes. And finally, we'd love to hear from you. If there's a topic you'd like to explore, or if you or someone you know would like to come on as a guest, drop us an email at hello at gowithbedo.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you soon. Thank you.